Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Neil Gorsuch and the Supreme Court. So, Richard, this is the first installment of the show on which you and I have been able to take up the topic of Neil Gorsuch, judge on the Tenth Circuit, now President Trump's nominee to fill the seat on the court last occupied by Antonin Scalia. Uh, let me just start with you as basic as we can. What do you make of Judge Gorsuch as a nominee for this position? Well, I've always thought that this was a no-brainer. He's a superb candidate. Um, he has an incredibly distinguished record and he has a perfect judicial temperament. And he is, as I think, as fair-minded as anybody you could hope to have on that court. In fact, one of the things that I marvel at is in this highly politicized age that you could find somebody with such success who doesn't have any political debts and doesn't have any political anguish or anger associated with him. So I'm very enthusiastic about this nomination and completely depressed about the kinds of opposition statements that are being hurled against him, which I regard as utterly unfounded. Let me take up uh, one line of argument. This is actually not targeted directly at him, but still something you're hearing from the left. Democrats, in drawing the battle lines over this nomination, one of their arguments has been that this is a stolen seat. This is a vacancy that arose during Barack Obama's presidency, and he had a nominee in Merrick Garland from the D.C. Circuit who was never given a real shot at the court. And some people even go so far as to argue that the Senate failed to live up to its constitutional duties there. How do you respond to these kind of arguments, Richard? Well, on the constitutional argument, I regard that as one of the most weak and most insidious arguments that you could make. The Democrats started this entire process of never giving anybody a hearing way back in, in W's administration. Uh, one of the most notable people was Miguel Estrada, who sat there for three, two years without receiving a hearing at all, and then had to withdraw in order to get on with his life as a professional lawyer. Uh, what the Democrats did at that time was perfect constitutional. The president has a duty to nominate. The Senate has the option to uh, consent but is not obliged to do so and is not obliged to give a hearing. In fact, I think one can say that if you are going to oppose somebody uh, for straight political reasons, it's best not to give the hearing because then what's going to happen is all the people who want the vote to go against them, which it will do in any event, will start to engage in the kind of abuse and calumny uh, that no nominee uh, deserves. Uh, judge Merrick Garland was a fine judge. He was first to the left than I am, but I've generally taken the view that since everybody has views different from my own, uh, that when people meet the general standards of qualifications, I would, as an abstract matter, support their nomination, and I certainly wouldn't oppose it. So if I had been in the Senate and uh, this had come up, I think I would have voted for Merrick Garland, but I could understand that the Republicans did not want to see the control of the court go over to the other side, and in fact, there were many instances in which earlier Democrats had stated that we're not going to improve any Republican nominee if it comes up in the last term. Uh, now you've got four years to go, and if you decide to stonewall a Gorsuch, somebody else is going to have to come up, and you'll stonewall that person. And all of a sudden, you could go for another three or four years, perhaps even another vacancy, and the filibuster is going to mean that the Democrats are going to try to get one of the two seats for themselves. At that point, the Republicans will play the nuclear option, and what we will do is essentially have a bare-knuckle fight in which the Democrats will lose. And so I'm very depressed that somebody as fine and admirable 
unbelievable as Neil Gorsuch has to be caught up in this partisan fight. And I think that decency and grace are required that he be allowed to have a vote. Uh, If the Democrats wish to vote against him, I think it's fine. But to use the filibuster under these circumstances for a candidate this admirable is simply out of the question. The only definition of mainstream that is being used here by the Democrats is a progressive, and that can't possibly be right. Let me actually take you back for a moment to what you just said about the fact that a guy like Merrick Garland, you would have been inclined to vote for him if you were you were on the Senate. This sort of dovetails with – there's a passage in a column that you wrote for Defining Ideas on this recently uh, where you wrote – I'm quoting you here. It's a sad symptom of our troubled times that our ablest jurists get caught up in confirmation battles that have little or nothing to do with their qualifications and all too much to do with politics. So in, in keeping with that point that you made about Judge Garland, so let me have you do this for us. Help me operationalize that. If it's lamentable that this is the trend and if the criteria criteria are not purely partisan, in other words, you said Garland would have sort of passed the test for judicial ability, how do you define that? What are the variables that a U.S. senator should be looking at when deciding whether or not to vote for confirmation if they're not these sort of naked partisan ones? Well, what you do is you see whether or not somebody has the esteem and respect of his colleagues, the esteem and respect of the bar, the esteem and respect of his clerks. Uh, you could read some of the opinions to see whether or not they are sort of quote-unquote truly bizarre. Uh, but when you find that the level of common votes uh, in uh, Gorsuch's case, he basically is on unanimous decisions about 95 or 98 percent of the time. Garland was also in that. Uh, You cannot turn around and start to say that somebody who is in a comfortable majority on bipartisan situation is out of the mainstream. Uh, My Hoover colleague and Stanford law professor Mike McConnell um, served uh, for three years on the Tenth Circuit with Gorsuch and had a, an exhaustive study of all his opinions during that time and afterwards and found that he was in fact typically in the middle between right and left and was a consensus builder. Knowing that kind of a, an examination yielding those sorts of results, it's utterly groundless to now come up with some imaginary difficulty that he's going to oppose you on some particular issue. So what the Democrats are thinking about is that they want to get campaign finance subject to regulation. Uh, They want to overturn the decisions on guns, and they certainly want to make sure that nothing happens with respect to abortion. But the Supreme Court does many, many other things, and to treat these as litmus tests means, in effect, that both sides who have strong feelings on all these issues have a built-in reason to veto. It's very difficult for one party to get 60 seats in the Senate, and if both parties were to play the same game under the filibuster rule, the Supreme Supreme Court would have no members after everybody on it either retires or dies off. This is not the way in which responsible public servants ought to conduct their business. And since there is no trust between the two parties across the generations, the only thing that will work is the naked majoritarianism. And I think that if the Democrats do pull the filibuster, the Republicans will be completely in their right uh, to scrap the rule. Remember, it was the Democrats who did that first in 2013. So you're not disquieted at all by the prospect of the filibuster going away. There's no sort of institutional virtue there that overrides the considerations on this one nomination? Well, when the Senate was a body that was deliberative, when it turned out that you had serious people, uh, when folks were prepared to break from complete party discipline, a 60-point vote is a supermajority that can be responsible. There are many decisions that in corporate world have to be taken that way, and so there's nothing wrong with it. But if it turns out that every time it's 
to lockstep one party against and lockstep the other party before, then that means that nobody is making any individuated judgment as to the merit or the worth of the candidate. And under those circumstances, I do not think that the veto should be absolute. And so therefore, you have to junk the filibuster. Now, the real crisis is going to come when you have presidents from one party and the Senate from another party, because at that particular point, you don't need the filibuster to block the nomination. And you could get these most untoward scenes. Generally, the president will have an advantage because you first reject one candidate, they come up with somebody else, and you reject the second. How many times can you reject? There's going to be a huge strategy game. Do you start, if you're a liberal, way to the left and then move to the center? Or do you go in the other direction, start to the middle and say, and if you don't do this, we're going to give you somebody even more difficult, and you're going to have to bear the time delays and the risk associated with it. This is a real path to institutional disaster, and we certainly don't need the Senate to respond that way. There are many things about Donald Trump that I take very strong exception to. This is not one of them. Richard, there are reports on the evening that we're recording this that Judge Gorsuch is already distancing himself from President Trump over the president's criticisms of federal judges that have ruled against him on the executive order regarding immigration. The reports are that according to a spokesman who's working on Gorsuch's confirmation, he told Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut, who to be clear was the first one to sort of leak to the press that this conversation had happened, that he found Trump's comments, the the two words that were used by a spokesman, demoralizing and disheartening. Are you similarly put off by the way that Trump is treating the judiciary at the moment? And, And did it make sense for Gorsuch to be public about this? Well, I mean, on the first question about whether or not Trump has misbehaved, I think the answer is self-evidently true. Uh, This is a system in which we want to have independent checks and balances. And when you start using terms like so-called, you make it appear as a judge. In this case, a Bush appointee is in fact a political figure and is illegitimate in his particular office and the president ought to be chastised for it. But the uh, nominee should not essentially be forced to bear the sins of the president because at that point, nobody will ever be able to get through because it's going to be impossible so long as he remains president uh, for uh, Mr. Trump to essentially remain silent when anything starts to offend him. Now, what I find very difficult in this case is you go into a private meeting. It's quasi-confidential. The issue is first raised by Blumenthal, not raised by Gorsuch. And it's obviously an effort to trap him in the hope that you'll create some distance between him and the president so the president will either falter in his support or pull the nomination, at which point you'll play the stunt again. I mean, I will answer for myself, uh, which is as follows, that any responsible person should not be required to say what everybody knows to be true, that the president should not meddle in judicial affairs in that fashion. But as I've said on multiple occasions, I think the actual hearings are a complete mistake for precisely this reason. You don't learn anything about the candidate when you put him up on the stand and force him to answer impossible questions. Uh, You can learn a great deal about the candidate by getting other people talk about what they know about him, examining his opinions. But they want to do this to humiliate and to shame him, and I think that that's deplorable conduct. And so my first remark would be that however bad Mr. Trump has been, Mr. Blumenthal going out on a limb and sort of planting this particular seed, raising the issue, is acting, as far as I'm concerned, outside of the bounds of decent behavior. And I fear that he will be followed by many similar questions coming from the Democrats. I think what should happen is Mr. Gorsuch should announce that he is dismayed and disheartened by the behavior of the Senate and then has to answer mildly but firmly, yes, I do believe in the independence of the judiciary. And just as I thought it was improper for Mr. Obama uh, to call out the conservatives on the Supreme Court in the State of the Union address, 
I think the same thing is true with respect to the president. I wish for the benefit of everybody that he would stop this kind of behavior. I can assure you it would not influence anything that I say or do when I'm a judge. I understand that political pressures are large. I also understand that the Constitution wants me to be independent and to be insulated from all these kinds of pressures. That's the kind of thing I think I would say. He's free to quote me. <laughs> Richard, uh, one of the traits that has been consistently cited over the last couple of weeks as a virtue of Gorsuch's is his ability as a writer. For a lay audience who's not steeped in the Supreme Court, can you give us a sense of the significance of that? I mean if each justice gets one vote, what, what is the difference between the ones who are – you know, li- have literary gifts and the ones who can't really string a sentence together? Is that going to uh-huh. matter – It always matters. One of the things that Nino Scalia used to say, and he was a great scholar um, and a great style was given to bombast from time to time, was he says, I don't write my opinions for the bar. I write my opinions for the law students who are going to be the future members of the bar. I want them to be in case books. And if they're dull and drab and kind of boring, that won't happen. If you could find a way to project the image in a responsible fashion, then you get it. Uh, Gorsuch is exactly the opposite. He does not use bombast, insult, or hyperbole. What he does is he uses a gentle wit. So he's kind of like Charles Lamb. He's an essayist of one sort or another. And his opinions are a delight to read precisely because uh, that um, they, off, they flow so easily and they're so utterly unoffensive. They are completely different men in terms of temperament. Uh, Justice Scalia was bored unless he got into a scrap. Uh, Judge, Scal- Judge Gorsuch, and hopefully Justice Gorsuch, is somebody who gets upset if somebody wants to really have a knuckle kind of fight. Down. It's just not who he is. And I think on a Supreme Court, he will be, in terms of temperament, a centrist kind of figure who will bring a lot of dignity and uh, distinction to the court. And, and seeing him drag through the mud like this is really one of the more depressing spectacles of modern times. At least with Garland, nobody was able to besmirch his character because it did not come up for discussion. This obviously will take place. And remember, no matter what happens with Gorsuch, there are likely to be one, two, even three new appointees in the next four years, and all of them are going to get the same treatment. As we close out here today, Richard, I want to have you address – we're going to be having a rolling conversation throughout this confirmation process about uh, originalism and the nature of originalism amongst a lot of people who really never focus on that topic unless there's a Supreme Court nomination. And I, I want you to play out for us a distinction that you made in the piece you wrote for Defining Ideas about originalism with which Judge Gorsuch is identified. You say in this piece – and I'm paraphrasing you here – but that even the defenders of originalism – have to acknowledge its limitations and that truth be told, there are some fairly central aspects of American law that don't quite fit within an originalist framework. Can you explain that? Sure. I mean, a lot of it depends upon how you describe originalism. The common formulation that's given today is we worry about the original public meaning. And original means at the time and how it was understood. Public means not any secret understanding. And meaning means we're not looking at the intentions of the various people. We're looking at their words and what they mean. And there's no question when you start dealing with the law of contract or statute, that's a very good place in which to start the analysis. And one of the reasons why it bites is that this kind 
kind of candor and accuracy in language is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for being a very able judge. And the reason why so many people lapse into linguistic relativism and obscurity is if you take these words and read them in that particular fashion, the New Deal falls apart. Uh, Because there's no question that what they do is they take a word commerce, which means trade, exchange, transportation, and so forth, and they now use it to mean exactly its opposite and to include it, manufacturing, agriculture, and mining. All local activities are now interstate. It's all double talk. And so the only way in which you can make good the claims that the New Deal rests upon is to reject the originalist proposition because it's these cases are right in its wheelhouse. But the originalist position is much more complicated. I'll just mention two things. One is I recently gave a lecture at Willamette University called Our Implied Constitution. And the theme of that particular lecture was to go through a bunch of doctrines which are absolutely indispensable for constitutional interpretation, which are not there in the text. Uh, So the police power is nowhere mentioned, and yet you need to have some way to preserve the power of the sovereign to make sure that the exercise of original liberties doesn't destroy a nation. So protection of freedom of speech doesn't cover defamation, protection of private property doesn't allow you to use your gun to stab anybody, and the police power is the way in which you try to discipline and overclaiming with respect to um, individual rights. And so that's one thing. And then it turns out that there's a very complicated doctrine called unconstitutional conditions, and that's trying to figure out what the government can do when it makes a grant when it's in a position of a monopolist. Uh, the Constitution only talks about the government as a regulator, not as a grantor and as a licensor, and yet its powers can't be completely unlimited, and somebody has to figure out what it can and cannot do in that role. Uh, recently, I I talked about a case called Zivotofsky, and it turns out that the Constitution, when it comes to the question of the distribution of powers between the Congress and the President over certain aspects of foreign affairs, just forgot to talk about it. So immigration is not clearly allocated to the federal government in the Constitution. And nobody knows who's entitled to decide, based upon the text, whether or not the United States should or should not have an embassy in Jerusalem, or should or should not enter certain things on somebody's password. So what you then have to do is to kind of look to custom and practice to fill in the gaps that the text leaves. That's not a very easy or satisfactory thing to do. And the last complication is extremely important, is it turns out the Constitution is filled with mistakes in interpretation and mistakes in its original design. This is not a perfect document by any means. In fact, the original Constitution, probably even by the most modest of standards, gave a little bit too much power to the states vis-a-vis the central governments on matters of national import. And it was clear, at least as far as I can tell from the original design, that the Supreme Court would only control the cases that it could take, but it could not have the power to declare statutes unconstitutional and bind the other two drafts branches. Nobody wants that. And so what we do is you rule the other way, long times pass, and just as you could get property rights through adverse possession, I call this the prescriptive constitution. Long usage has the power of law, even if it goes against the text. In some cases, but not in all cases. So no matter how originalist you are, you have to deal with this prescription problem. And these are all extremely difficult questions, but you must do so knowing very closely the techniques of interpretation that were available at the time of the founding. And one of the things that I find very depressing is virtually all constitutional scholars today are inveterate moderates, modernists. That is, all they do is they know what happened in the last 20 years. I have a very different background. I learned my interpretive studies doing 
doing Roman doctrine, doing medieval law, doing early English law, doing colonial law, and so forth. And those traditions were not nearly as textual as some of the originalists say. But by the same time, they certainly didn't say, oh, times have changed, we need a bigger central government, let's just change the meaning of the word commerce so it means something else. So putting all of these things together, uh, it's difficult. And the simplest way in which to state this is you could have two originalists come out on the opposite side of a difficult question using the same techniques. The leading example of that is the originalist opinion by Justice Stevens in the gun case, Heller, as opposed to Scalia. And I think as a textual matter, the Stevens reading is more accurate than the Scalia. Uh, than the Scalia reading. This is heresy to many people on the right, but if you're going to do the methodology in a case where it seems to be applicable, you have to take into account all the terms and all the implications. And I, and another time, could go in why it is I think it went this way. The simple explanation is this. Justice Scalia decided to say uh, that... Um, he was going to knock out the first 14 words of the amendment and then add in a police power justification. Justice Stevens' interpretation doesn't require you to take anything out of the text or to add anything in. So as an originalist matter, the burden would be on Justice Scalia, not on Justice um, Stevens. So anyhow, I hope that answers it. It does, Richard, but I'm sure this is a conversation we're going to be having over the next couple of months as this confirmation process continues. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Thank you to you, Richard. And remember that you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian. It's at definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter as well. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.